This morning we're going to be continuing our series uh, entitled, I Have Sinned. Uh, and throughout the summer, all the way to the end of August, we're going to be looking at various Bible characters who messed up pretty badly. And we're going to be looking at how did that sin impact their life? Where did it lead them with the ultimate desire being for each one of us that we would recognize our status as sinners and find a place of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. So as we get started this morning, you can probably guess whose story we're going to be looking at now. <laughs> uh, but as we get started, I want to ask you a question. Now, as I ask you this question, I'm going to ask that you just remember the first name that comes to mind. I don't want you to think too deeply about it. We're not going to spend much time right here on it, but we're going to come back to it a little bit later, okay? So here's the question. If you could have dinner with anybody who is presently alive, who would you have dinner with? Now this, the qualification is it's somebody that you have not had dinner with. So some of you might be like my spouse. That's a great answer, but that's not what we're looking for this morning, okay? So it's tucked out of the way in the back of your head. We're going to come back to it later on. Remember, the first name that came to is what we're looking for. So when we began this series back in May and since that point in time, we have looked at several different sinners in the Bible, which sort of begs the question, in a sense, what is a sinner? Well, the easy answer is a sinner is somebody who sins. Well, what sin? Because obviously those goalposts over time have moved, and it's sort of, in a lot of ways for our society, an antiquated word anymore. From a biblical perspective, sin is any time we break the law of God. And that can be either by doing something he told us not to do, or it could be by doing some, not doing something he did tell us to do. Now, even though that term is antiquated in our society, the idea of sin still very much resonates. Regardless of what your perspective is on a particular issue, you probably have a list of things that you condemn, that you think are wrong, and that no one should be engaged in. And obviously, the answers are going to vary depending where you are on the spectrum. But the idea that nobody thinks that sin is really that important, I don't think is really true. It's just that we view it differently. What we are seeking to do is take it from a scriptural standpoint and ask, what's God's perspective on it? And so this morning, we're going to look at it through the first New Testament character that's on our list, and we'll get to him in a moment. But if you've been paying attention, there's been four individuals that we've gone through so far in this series. We've looked at David, we've looked at Pharaoh, we've looked at Micah, we've looked at Saul. Now, each of those four men messed up big time in their life and did some pretty horrible things, including David having an affair with another man's wife, and then when he couldn't get away with it, he has that man killed. But while they each mess up really, really big time, there are some differences between David and Micah and Pharaoh and King Saul. For David and Micah, their sin ultimately, and sometimes it was through a painful path, but their sin ultimately drove them to God. They ultimately went to the only one who could actually deal with their sin. For the Pharaoh and for Saul, their sin drove them away from God. Their hearts continued to be hardened. They did not come to the one and only one who could deal with it. And we're going to see that pattern continue as we continue through this series for the rest of the summer. So keep that in the back of your mind as we do it. And then answer this question. Where does your sin drive you? Does your sin drive you to a God who cares deeply for you and loves you? Or does your sin drive you away from him into hiding, into trying to keep everything together so you look good to others? 
That's a big question, and it's one that each of us needs to answer. So like I said, this is the first uh, sinner we're going to be looking at from the New Testament and specifically from the Gospels. And if you know anything about the Gospels, you know there are four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Three of those Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who we'll be looking at today, are what we call the synoptic Gospels. And all that really means is the content in each of their Gospel accounts, while it varies some degree, has a lot of similarities. Of all the passages that are written in the four Gospel accounts, less than 5% of them deal with Jesus' life before he turns 30. Approximately two-thirds of them deal with Jesus' itinerant ministry, where he's going from town to town, he's performing miracles, and he's teaching. And then nearly one-third deal with the very last week or so of his earthly life. And in this case, as we look at Luke, we're going to see where this story fits into that flow. But the trajectory or the line that's following through the Gospels is that Jesus is going to the cross. And the Gospel writers are interested in letting us know how Jesus got there, why Jesus is going there, and ultimately what Jesus accomplishes at the cross. So this section of Luke's Gospel is the very tail end of Jesus' roughly three years of earthly ministry. It's right before he goes to the cross, and he's making his way to Jerusalem. This is what Luke says in Luke chapter 18, verses 31, and this is just a few verses before where we'll be looking at today. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For three years, Jesus has publicly taught and healed and performed various miracles throughout Israel. But now he's got one place in his mind, and that's Jerusalem. And that's where he's headed, but he's, he's, he's making a pit stop here before he gets there in the story that we'll look at today. So Jesus is going to be going from large, large crowds of people at times to just a small grouping of people after this point. He'll be with his disciples during the Passover. He'll be with his accusers during his trial. And he'll be with the Roman authorities for his execution. If you're interested in where this fits in in Luke, let me encourage you at some point in time to read Matthew chapter 19 and 20 and Mark chapter 10, because those are the, the parallel passages that talk about this time frame. And they, they cover a lot of the same stories, but only Luke has the story of Zacchaeus, the story of a tax collector. And this is not surprising at all if you've read the rest of the Gospel of Luke, because this will be now the fifth time that Luke is going to reference tax collectors. Sometimes it's just in general that they're there and they're listening. Sometimes it's very specific, like in Luke 3, where they're with John the Baptist, and they're asking him, what must we do to have favor with God? Some of them are like Luke 18, where Jesus is telling a story, and he says two men go up to a temple. One's a, a really religious guy, and the other guy's a tax collector. And the tax collector, he can't even look up because he realizes how bad he is. And then this will be the last one, in essence, that Luke will deal with, the story of Zacchaeus. But in each of these cases, as you read through those passages, the one thing you will notice is that Luke treats tax collectors very positively, which was something in the day and age in which the gospel accounts took place and when they were recorded did not happen. Now, I know in today's day and age, we don't like tax collectors much either. But back then, it was more than just a dislike or even a disdain, and we'll get to that in a moment. But to expect that tax collectors would be viewed positively would almost have been unimaginable 
even to those who are receiving Luke's gospel account. So let's get started. Let's take a look at the story of Zacchaeus. And if you looked at how, how we laid it out and the title of the message, we're looking at Zacchaeus, the repentant sinner. And as we go through this 10-verse passage together, we're going to look at how he got to the point of repentance and what repentance looked like in his life. And I hope that the story is going to be more to you after this morning than just a familiar Sunday school story, than just the cute little song that we sang, that you're going to see from it that it's more than just a passing story of Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. And they had to throw some more stuff in to get, a, to get the gospel of Luke long enough. It's not any of those things. It's a story about why Jesus is going to the cross. And it's a story about how he can impact each and every one of our lives. So as we go through the passage, I want you to notice five things with me. Notice that Zacchaeus came to see Jesus with an open mind. Notice that he came to, that Zacchaeus didn't let the crowd get in his way of seeing Jesus. Notice that Zacchaeus didn't let his pride get in the way of seeing Jesus. Notice that Zacchaeus received Jesus joyfully. And lastly, notice that Zacchaeus realized the one thing that kept him from Jesus. He came with an open mind. He didn't let the crowd or his pride get in his way. He received Jesus joyfully, and he realized the one thing that was keeping him from Jesus. So in the gospel accounts, we see a variety of group of people that interact and individuals that interact with Jesus. Some of the people are the ones we would expect are going to like Jesus. They're the good, moral, Bible-reading people, but they don't. And then there's another group. It's the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the sick, the outcasts, the children, all of whom meant nothing in the society they lived in. And yet, they're the ones who flock to Jesus. And it's not only that they come to Jesus, but if you look at it in reverse, if you look at how Jesus interacts with these various individuals and groups of people, with the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his day, he's often challenging them with their wrong thinking, wrong attitude, wrong understanding of who God is. But for those who are outcasts, he's welcoming them. He's showing them and demonstrating to them that they are not too far from God if they trust him. Now, ultimately, the good people don't want anything to do with Jesus either. And that's one of the things we sort of have to wrestle with as we read the scriptures, because it just doesn't seem to make sense. So with that in mind, I want to go back to that question I asked you at the very beginning. If there was one person that you haven't had dinner with and who's still alive that you could have dinner with, who would it be? Now, let me ask with a show of hands, how many of you thought of somebody in sports? Nobody? Oh, all right. Lewis has got my back. Thanks. How about, um, how about somebody in the arts, like music, art, an author? Okay, a couple people. How about somebody in business or an inventor? Okay, got a couple there. How about somebody in politics? Oh, a couple people. How about somebody in religion, and religion meaning it could be somebody who's really impacted you through their teaching, through their books. Okay, I suspected we might see a little bit more on that answer. Now, how many of you thought about the man or woman who's homeless at the train station when you get off the train in Center City, Philadelphia? Anybody? Ooh, no hands on that one. All right, all right, let's go, to, let's go to another one. How about the mentally ill person who's Outward actions and the things they say make you feel a little awkward. Anybody for that person? No hands for that one either. Okay, let's keep going. How about the single mom whose children always seem to be out of control? No? Nobody? Wow. 
I must have, I should have had a better list. Um, how about the man or woman you work with at the office or your neighbor whose politics and worldview is radically different than yours? How about that? No? Nobody? But that's exactly what Jesus does, right? He's always constantly seeking out the people who are radically different, who you would think, nah, he's not going to want to spend time with them at all. And the good people, they seem to just be off on the side because they have no intention of spending time with him. So as we see this passage unfold, let's look at verse 1. Verse 1, he entered, uh, this is uh, Luke 19, verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And it almost sounds like if you just read that verse and nothing else, that this was just a pit stop. It's sort of like when you're traveling somewhere in the car and the kids need to use the bathroom. And Jesus is just stopping off because it's on the way. So if you look at that, and I know it's not abundantly clear, but if you look at the red circle up there, that's Jerusalem. That's where he's headed. The green circle is Jericho. And the line, the red line in between was the route that they would use to get there. So if you're thinking of distance-wise, Jericho to Jerusalem was about the distance that if you got in your car right now and you headed north on the 309, you'd get to Coopersburg. If you headed a little bit northwest on 63 and 29, you'd get to East Greenville. If you headed west on 113, you'd come to the Schuylkill River. Or if you headed south on County Line Road, you'd get to Hatboro. That's about the distance between Jerusalem and Jericho. Now, this was an important road in its day. A lot of important figures, public figures, would come through Jericho or from Jerusalem through Jericho back on their way home. And so it was a great place for their version of stargazing to get to meet rich and important people who they otherwise wouldn't get to interact with. But it's also the road that Jesus tells one of the most famous stories about, the story of the Good Samaritan. This is the road where he's beaten up and left for dead, only for a Samaritan, who, by the way, is an outcast, to come along and be the one who cares for him. And, of course, Jericho, most famously, is the city that when the Israelites are entering the Promised Land, come across. And one of the most unique moments in history occurs. To get through, something has to happen to the people of Jericho. And so we normally would think of a battle going on, but it's not that kind of military action, right? They march around the city, they blow some trumpets, and all of a sudden the walls fall down. Right? So as we're thinking about Jericho, that's what we're thinking of. As Jesus is walking through Jericho, he's going to come across Zacchaeus. And verse 2 says, And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. All we know is this guy's name so far and what he does. And it tells us two things. It says he was a chief tax collector, meaning he probably oversaw a region of people who collected taxes for the Roman authorities, and he was rich. Now, those are not two separate facts. They are interconnected. He was rich because he was a tax collector. Now, it's common in our society to view the IRS with disdain, isn't it? But that doesn't necessarily parallel with tax collectors in the Bible. So it's helpful to know what they actually did. So Rome, as it expanded through its military conquests and took over other nations and people groups, one of the things that they actually did in order to keep those people subjected to them was they implemented extremely harsh tax codes on almost anything you could think of. And the taxes themselves were regressive, meaning the less you had, the more you paid. And that was to keep them from revolting. The tax collectors who collected that money were not civil servants like they are today. They actually paid to be able to be tax collectors. 
So they were like a franchisee. So it's like today, if you own uh, Chick-fil-A or McDonald's, you pay a franchise fee to corporate to do that. And then you have to do certain things under their name using their brands. That's exactly what this was like. And so Rome would say, here's how much you have to collect, and it better all show up in our coffers. And as long as it did, the tax collectors could skim a little bit, add a little bit to the top and keep it for themselves, and, and Rome would look the other way. Which is why then, in the very first passage that Luke references a tax collector, back in Luke chapter 3, where he's with, where this group of tax collectors is with John the Baptist, they ask him, what, what are we to do? We know we're far from God, what are we to do? And he says to him, don't collect any more than you're authorized to collect. Ah, now it starts to make sense. That's how they're making their money. And Zacchaeus was no different. And what's interesting is his name in Hebrew actually means pure or innocent. Not what the people of his day would have thought of him as. So for Zacchaeus, as well as for the gospel writer Matthew, who was also a Jewish tax collector for Rome. Being Jewish and being a tax collector meant you were viewed more as a traitor. It wasn't that you were a jerk for auditing another taxpayer and making them spend all their time and money to defend themselves. It was that you were a traitor. To use somebody we would be common with in our history, you were Benedict Arnold. You were siding with the Romans who were an occupying force and helping them out instead of helping your own people. So this is the man that is going to be at the heart of this part of Luke's gospel account. Let's look at verse 3. And here's what it says about him. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. What was Zacchaeus up to? Why was he there? All it tells us is that he seems to have a curiosity. Now, we don't know, is that because somebody else talked about Jesus coming through? And he's like, oh, I've heard this name. Let me go check him out. We don't know. Many people came to Jesus for a variety of reasons. Some wanted to be healed. Someone had a family member they wanted healed. Some were trying to find dirt on Jesus because they didn't like him being around. Some thought he was a good teacher and they wanted to hear his stories more, but it doesn't seem like Zacchaeus, at least from what we're told, fits into any of those common categories. It just seems as though he's open-minded and curious about Jesus. And he didn't have a preconceived notion of who Jesus was that was going to get in his way from exploring him. Now, earlier I mentioned that I think this passage sort of parallels our context in our present day and age. And here's what I meant by that. Oftentimes we think of people coming to Christ at least primarily, if not solely, because of a major need in their life that they see. It could be somebody who is on drugs. It could be somebody who has blown through five marriages. It could be a variety of situations. And we, we have the impression that that's how somebody comes to Jesus. Now, thankfully, people can come to Jesus with major burdens, and we should not diminish that fact. But what about those who don't have a major perceived need in their life that they see at the moment? Can they come to Jesus? How about our coworkers and friends at the office, our neighbors, our family members who don't know Christ, but they wouldn't say that they have a major need? Well, Zacchaeus offers us, I think, a somewhat of a framework that yes, there is actually an opportunity to come to Christ if you're willing to do it with an open mind. Because just because you have a major need and Jesus meets it does not mean you will turn out to be one of his followers. We see that all throughout the gospel accounts. Luke tells us about the 10 lepers who want to be cleansed, and Jesus cleanses all 10 of them. How many come back? One, to say thank you and to worship him. Jesus tells us a story of somebody sowing seed along the path, right? And there's four different groups. Only one of them doesn't produce anything. Two of the four 
seem like there's growth in their life. And then as soon as there's a distraction, as soon as things don't go the way they expect, they shrivel up and die. Now, as we get to verse, the rest of verse three, we get to the most familiar part of the story. But on account of the crowd, Zacchaeus could not see Jesus because he was small in stature, right? If we're honest and we know the story, that's probably one of the parts that stands out the most, along with the next part that we'll see in the upcoming verse. And we think that the reason that he can't see Jesus is there's just too many people and he's too short. And of course he was. So back then, an average man would be about between five and five foot five. That's about five to 10 inches less than an average American man today. So if he was standing next to me, he's like here. Right? So that's an average guy. He's really short. But we've all been to a parade or a sporting event or a concert. What do you normally do when somebody who is shorter is behind you? Most of the time, we just let them through, right? Him being five foot, that's not gonna mean a hill of beans to me. I can see just fine. But that doesn't happen here. Why doesn't it happen here? What would make it so that you wouldn't let somebody in front of you? You know, if you were at the Souderton Christmas Parade that Grace Christian School participates in and that we help serve by sending out marshals, right? If, if you were watching the parade, what would it take for you to be like, nah, I'm not gonna let that person in front of me. I mean, maybe they're wearing cowboy's gear, right? It has to be something significant, right? No, in all reality, most of the time, we wouldn't let somebody in if we had some type of significant issue with them. And that's the problem here, because the real point, I believe, of the end of chapter, uh, verse three is this, but on account of the crowd. The crowd had no desire to let Zacchaeus in. He was despised, he was an outsider, he was a traitor. They weren't gonna make any room for him this day or any other day. So even though Zacchaeus desires to see Jesus, he's run into a problem and it's time for plan B. Verse four, so he ran up ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree. Now this is not a real tall tree, it's a relatively short tree, to see him, to see Jesus, for he was about to pass that way. So the first thing we talked about that allowed Zacchaeus to see Jesus was he had an open mind. The second part, as we get to the most famous part of the story, the tree, is that he didn't let, I think I went, did I go past? Put him out of order. Um, he did not let the crowd get in his way. He did not let the crowd prevent him from seeing Jesus. And it's not easy to go against the crowd, is it? It's easier when somebody makes an inappropriate joke at work to laugh along with them. It's easier not to say anything when the boss or a supervisor does something wrong. It's easier to stay quiet when somebody around you is gossiping about somebody else and tearing them down because we don't wanna rock the boat. Conformity on the surface seems to keep peace and has a lot less downside. It keeps things comfortable. But on the other hand, standing up to the crowd, especially if that crowd, if you're part of that tribe, 
often has painful consequences. One of those examples is found in John, John's gospel account. We see Jesus heals a man who's been blind since birth. And the Pharisees are outraged that this has happened. And so they call the man in, and they don't like his testimony, so they call his parents. And his parents come in, and they're like, is this your son? Was he blind since birth? Did Jesus heal him? And they're like, well, this is our son, but, you know, he's an adult. He can answer for the rest. They wanted no parts of rocking the boat. Why? John tells us. He says it's because the Pharisees had determined that anybody who stood with Jesus could be thrown out of the synagogue. And to be thrown out of the synagogue for a person in that day and age meant you lost community. You lost a connection to God because that's where you worshipped him. And quite possibly because you lived in a small community, your economic standing would have crashed too because people wouldn't have dealt with you. Ooh, they're not at the synagogue anymore. So standing up and going against the crowd isn't always easy. Conforming is. And that's why the Apostle Paul, as he's writing his letter to the church at Rome, himself somebody who had targeted the church, had killed people and imprisoned others, writes these words to us, from Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. If you want to see Jesus, you've got to move past the crowd. but you don't just need to move past the crowd, you need to move past your own pride. Zacchaeus didn't let his pride keep him from seeing Jesus. You see, first century Jewish men, they didn't climb trees. Kids, maybe, but not men. It wasn't dignified. It would have been humiliating. Can you imagine now, think about what they wore, open at the bottom. You're climbing a tree and it gets snagged? Uh-oh. Right? If you remember the Super Bowl a few years ago, the one halftime show, we got a new term, wardrobe malfunction. That's what he faced. But he also faced the ridicule. This was one more reason that the people who already despised him would sneer and snicker at him. And yet, he still climbs the tree. He didn't care what others were going to say or think about him. Now, it's interesting. Many of the most deadly diseases that we have don't cause death because they don't have a treatment. They cause death because they're not treated soon enough. Treatments exist. The problem is the symptoms either don't show up right away or by the time you actually do have symptoms, it's too late. Pride works the same way. Now, I am certain that most of you know Proverbs 16, 18. I'm going to start it out, and you're going to finish it, all right? Pride goes before the fall, and a haughty spirit before a fall. James and Peter both picked up on that, and they say, remember, God opposes the proud, or he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. But knowing about the dangers of humility, of, uh, of humility, oh boy, knowing about the dangers of pride and actively pursuing humility aren't the same thing. In fact, in a twisted way, we can sort of be proud about the fact that we know a Bible verse about how pride is bad. And there's so many things that we can put pride into, right? We can be proud of our work, of our families, of our wealth, our status, our education, our faithfulness to Penn Valley Church. We can be proud in all of those. 
The problem this creates, though, is what the 20th century American theologian John Gerstner said in a very famous quote. He said, the main thing between you and God is not so much your sins. It is your damnable good works. What's keeping you back from Jesus isn't those overt sins that we tend to think of immediately, but it's how good we tend to view ourselves as being. Zacchaeus was an upper middle class man. He had a life that most people in that day and age would have loved to have. He didn't let that keep him from seeing Jesus. Verses 15, uh, 5 and 6. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and he came down and received him joyfully. Here's the Jesus we so often see in the scriptures. He's in the midst of a sizable crowd. Everybody else has their attention elsewhere. But as he's coming up to the tree where Zacchaeus is trying to see him at, he stops and he looks up. And what he does is he doesn't laugh, he doesn't poke fun at, he doesn't make a zinger towards Zacchaeus. But like he did a few verse, a chapters ago in Luke, in Luke chapter 8, where we have the woman with the issue of the blood who touches him in the midst of all this crowd, and he's like, who touched me? And they're like, what do you mean who touched you? Everybody's touched you. And he's like, no, I, I sense the power go out. And she comes sheepishly to him and says, it was me, expecting that she's going to get a lecture. And he says, your faith has made you well. Right? He notices the people who nobody else notices or intentionally tries to ignore. And he's doing that with Zacchaeus. And he's not just giving him a friendly hello. It's not a fist bump. It's not a quick photo op to shake his hand and move on. Jesus says to him basically, hey, how about we get dinner together tonight at your place? I want to have a relationship with you, Zacchaeus. Because in that day and age, staying with somebody, having dinner with them, meant that you were embracing them. So Jesus, in a crowd of people, chooses the person who they would have all viewed as the worst in their community. And he says, hey, you want to grab dinner tonight? And what's Zacchaeus' response? Uh, yeah. <laughs> he hops down, heads to his house, and receives Jesus joyfully. So he's already come with an open mind. He's already laid aside his pride. He's gotten past the crowd. And now he's going to receive Jesus joyfully. He doesn't say, oh, you know what? I've really got to clean up the house and tidy it up before Jesus comes over. I've got to hide that money I've been stealing for all these years. He doesn't do any of that. He rushes down from the tree and he goes with Jesus to his house. Jesus isn't looking for us to obey him first and then have a relationship with him. He isn't looking for us to produce our resume of all the good things we've done. He's looking for us to joyfully accept his invitation. And that's exactly what Zacchaeus does. But look at the response from the crowd. And when they saw it, they all, what? Grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. What they're really saying is, wait a minute, this Jesus we've been hearing about, we've always heard about his miracles and his teaching and nobody was like him and man, we were excited. And he shows up and he wants to spend time with this loser? They are like the crowd that as Jesus enters Jerusalem, says Hosanna, and a few days later, yells, crucify him. Crowds 
oftentimes with Jesus are fans. They are not ultimately followers. Now notice verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone, and he has, of anything, I am going to restore it fourfold. Despite all the jeers and snickering from the crowd for Jesus hanging out with him, it's clear that accepting Jesus' invitation has made a substantial, long-term impact in Zacchaeus' life. For an unspecified period of time, he had been collecting more taxes than he was instructed to do, and he was pocketing the money. Money was obviously the most important thing to him. But now as he's spending time with Jesus, as he's interacting with him, we see that he decides to do two things. First, and it's interesting the order, but first, he says, I'm going to give half my goods half of what I have to the poor. Now we're used to the idea of giving and we connect it back to the Old Testament with the idea of tithing and, and there was more than just the 10% they give and all that. But most people were not doing what Zacchaeus does and he does it immediately. He doesn't wait, he's not like, you know what, I'm gonna to talk to my portfolio manager and make sure I can do this. He says, you know what? I've had an interaction with a living God. I'm gonna give half my goods to the poor. And secondly, if I've defrauded anybody of anything, I'm gonna restore it fourfold. Now, you may remember back to the winter months in our series in the book of Leviticus, Pastor Adam pointed out that if you did something, if you stole from somebody, you gave back what you took and you added 20%. Zacchaeus is going to give back, and he's going to add on an extra 400% on top. Not 20, which quite honestly is pretty generous, but 400%. There's only one place in the Bible that comes anywhere close to this, and it's in Exodus 22, verse 1. How many of you know that verse? Anybody? Oh, guys got to get up on your Bible reading. It says that if anybody steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he has to re repay the ox fivefold and the sheep fourfold. Zacchaeus is going to do this for everyone he has defrauded. Think how long that list would have been. Now you see, just a few verses earlier than this, in chapter 18, Jesus tells, there's a story that's told of a rich young man who comes to Jesus. And he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know the Ten Commandments. And the young man says, I've kept them since I was young. Jesus doesn't argue with him. He doesn't say, no, you don't. You don't understand these Ten Commandments. He says, there's one thing you're still lacking. Give everything, everything you have to the poor and come follow me and you will have treasure in heaven. And the young man just rushes away and gives away everything, right? No, what does he do? You can sort of see his head go down as he walks away because he's really wealthy and, and, and why would I want to give that up? And the crowd is already beside themselves as what's happening. And Jesus says, you know what? It's really hard for somebody who's rich to get into heaven. And now they're like, what? Well, if a good, moral, hardworking, wealthy person can't get into heaven, then who can? And what does Jesus say? With man, it's impossible. But with God, it is possible. And so now Luke's going to show how it is possible because he's going to bring in this story of Zacchaeus and his interaction with Jesus. Because you see what Zacchaeus has done? 
Jesus' words to that rich young man were, but one thing you lack, one thing. What was it? He loved his money too much. Zacchaeus realized he had one thing. He had a love for money. But now that cannot compare to his interaction with Jesus. That love of money and everything that it brought in his life paled in comparison to the God with whom he stood face to face. So Zacchaeus identified that one thing, but he didn't just identify it, he acted on it, and that's the key. In his earthly ministry, John the Baptist said that you are to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. See, repentance is a change of mind. We see things a little bit differently. We're seeing them not from our own perspective, but from God's. But that's only one part of it. If we just acknowledge that God's right in this, but nothing changes, then we haven't acted in faith. Zacchaeus acts in faith. And he says, you know what? I know I've done some wrong things. And I know for me what that means is I've got to repay it plus 400%. And he acts on it immediately. So as we finish up, here's some application questions for you. And I apologize. I don't know how well you can read them. So I'll read them off. Are you willing to come and examine Jesus as he is revealed in the Bible and do so with an open mind? Are you willing to allow him to challenge you and change you? What crowds are there in your life that keep you from Jesus? What's one step today, not a future date, today, that you can take to walk toward Jesus and away from that crowd? What areas of pride are in your life that keep you from seeing Jesus? What's one way today you can cultivate humility in one of those areas and can draw closer to Jesus? Have you welcomed Jesus in your life? If so, have you done so joyfully? If welcoming Jesus didn't produce joy when it happened, is it possible you missed part of the gospel? And lastly, is there an area of your life that you have elevated over Jesus? It doesn't have to be a bad thing. It can be anything. If so, why have you done it? And what would it take to remove that barrier so that Jesus can have his rightful place in your life? Now, Penn Valley Church, our desire is that everything that we do, including the teaching and preaching on a Sunday morning, is tied to the good news of Jesus Christ. As we finish this time together, let's see how the gospel connects this story. How it had turned Zacchaeus into a repentant sinner who became part of God's family and led to the fruit of repentance in his life. And we see it in verses 9 and 10. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus, on his road to Jerusalem, where he will die on the cross to pay for all of man's sins, makes this stop to show what that is going to look like. And it's going to be through this life of a tax collector named Zacchaeus. You see, the real reason that this happened isn't, and these are all good things that Zacchaeus did, it's not because, ultimately, it's not because Zacchaeus came with an open mind. It's not because he didn't let the crowd get in the way. It's not because he didn't let his pride get in the way. It's not because he opened his home and welcomed Jesus joyfully. And it's not because they identified those one things. It couldn't have happened without those things. But it happened because the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Now, we're talking about sinners. Who in the Bible is a sinner? Everybody but one person. Because Romans 3.23 tells us that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And it seems fitting then, 
in, his, in light of Jesus' mission that he spelled out here in verse 10. That before he goes to the cross, he has this moment in Jericho. Earlier I mentioned the battle of Jericho in the book of Joshua. Before it happens, the Israelites send in two spies to see what's going on with Jericho. Those two spies' lives were at risk until a prostitute by the name of Rahab intercedes to protect them and puts herself and her family at risk because they can't leave. But she knows something is up. Those spies who could have been caught come back and they tell Joshua what's happened. And then a few chapters later in Joshua 6, it tells us, these are the words it tells us, it says that the city of Jericho was closed up. Nobody was going in, nobody was going out. And on that seventh day, as the Israelites marched around seven times and blew their horns, and the walls crumbled, Rahab, whose home was there, and her family are spared by God's grace. But it's not just that she is spared, she is grafted in as a Canaanite woman to God's family, because years and years and years and years later, she will become the great, 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 you get the point, grandmother of Jesus Christ. And we see that in Matthew 1, we see where she falls in the lineage. And so it's appropriate that on this day in Jericho, Rahab's great, 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 great grandson, the better and greater Joshua, is yet again going to miraculously save a sinner in Jericho and put him, graft him in to God's family, a city that when Jesus arrives is closed up, not physically, but spiritually. And he is going to interact and intercede and impact the life of this man from Jericho. And he desires to do the same for you and I. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this account. We thank you for your mercy and for your grace. And we thank you that you have come, Jesus, so we can be with you. Help us to acknowledge that we are, in fact, sinners. Help us, as you are working in our lives, to see those areas where we still elevate things above you, Jesus. And to be able not only to repent by changing our mindset, but to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So that you can make us more like you. We ask in your name. Amen.